I like to walk when I preach, and uh, <laughs> microphones and I don't always agree with each other, so I wanted to do several things this morning. First of all, I want to share just a few life experiences that uh, I have had uh, that will impact my pastorate here, have impacted it for the last 30 years, and uh, you'll hear it come out in sermons, you'll see it as I do ministry. Uh, God takes life experiences and uses them, and uh, in pastors' lives, it's the same way. So I'm going to share three experiences with you. You'll hear more of them uh, as the weeks go by, and as, as we spend time together, I'm going to share a little bit with you about what I'm uh, leading us to do from an administrative perspective, and, and then invite you to do some missions with me, and then we'll get into uh, the passage uh, with some preaching. First life experience, which had made a tremendous impression on my life. My life as a child was like a curtain call. Great, what I would call middle class upbringing in uh, Richmond, which is my hometown. And everything was going great. Until I was in the sixth grade and I came home one day, walked into our home. I looked into my mother's face. I could tell that there was a different atmosphere in the house that I had never experienced or seen before. Uh, she told us we were leaving to go to our grandparents' house uh, immediately, which we were whisked off, my sister and I, in that direction. And I uh, got back home that evening and discovered, to my shock, that my parents' marriage was falling to pieces. Uh, for the next year, our home was a living, and I won't use the word, but you can imagine, with fighting going on every night, alcohol consumption became part of the family atmosphere. I remember one night laying in bed, having been instructed by my mother because a lot of fighting was going on in the home. Back in those days, they didn't have 911, so I had access to a telephone directory to call the police to the house in case violence got out of hand. Um, and it just sort of continued to escalate from there. Uh, a year later, from that beginning point, I came home one afternoon and my uh, parents met with my sister and I and told us that they were going to separate, probably lead to a divorce, and uh, Dad would be leaving. About two weeks later, I came home one afternoon. I always had a habit of going to my parents' bedroom and watching television. I remember going in there that day, looking over at my dad's dresser, and it was empty. I went to the uh, closet and opened it to see that it was empty, and I knew that the separation had occurred and Dad was gone. We were a middle-class family, but we went to living on alimony and child support, which plunged us into poverty, and so we began to count every penny uh, that we got, and life became a real struggle at that point uh, from an emotional perspective, from a financial perspective, etc., and that made an impact on my life as a child. It made an impact on my life for the rest of my life. Uh, one of the ways that it has impacted me in working with young people is I know what it's like to grow up fatherless. Uh, I know what it's like to, to come home and not have a dad in the home. I remember one of the greatest crises in my young life when dad left was dad used to help me with my math homework and wondering how I was going to pass math uh, without him being there uh, to help me out. Uh, my church, Bonaire Baptist Church in Richmond, uh, became uh, my salvation in so many ways. I just went there every chance I got. The pastor I had in those days was a guy by the name of Bob Cochran, and Bob Cochran became a surrogate dad for me. I spent all kinds of time in his office. Uh, he took me visiting with him. We just hung out together all the time. He had grown up in an alcoholic background, and uh, he understood some of what I was going through and the situation that I was in. And so that experience of both 
learning what it was like to be the child of a, what was called in those days, a broken family, and then also being in a church family that loved me, supported me, walked beside me, and having a pastor who just sort of took me on as an adopted son got me through my adolescence. I don't think I'd be standing in this pulpit today had it not been for Bonnier Baptist Church. And as a pastor, what I have always led churches to do is to try to be an atmosphere where there is love, there is support, where we're with people, where we walk with them through the heartaches of life, etc. Uh, the pastor that I just left, one of the most difficult aspects of leaving that pastor was saying goodbye to a group of young men that I had poured my life into, that I had sort of been like a, a dad to, and doing the same thing like that in the neighborhood. And so that's going to impact and influence a, a whole lot uh, of what I do here. I, I grew up uh, being the odd kid out in a lot of ways, because in those days, if you were from a broken home, you were sort of considered the odd kid out. So I sort of understand what it's like to take that uh, pilgrimage in life. Now, the next major experience I had that, that impacted me was as a parent. Uh, we have a son, Jonathan. He is 24 now, and he lives in Chesapeake, and he didn't make the journey with us here because he's got a full-time job, praise God, uh, having graduated from college and is paying off him college tuition and so forth. And, uh, but anyway, he'll be with us in a, in a few weeks for a visit. But when Jonathan was in kindergarten, he started school, uh, we got him in, you know, in those days we were living in Galax, I was a pastor at First Baptist Galax, and I remember taking him to school, and uh, they had those wonderful, glorious things that all of you in education just love called SOLs. And they were freaking my son out, and they were freaking us out as parents trying to, to deal with them, etc. And Jonathan was coming home in kindergarten and just having a, a really rough time with it. And uh, keeping up with the academics, but I, you know, I thought, well, he's just having trouble adjusting to school. And then we got into first grade, and it continued. And they came to us, and they said, we feel like he needs to repeat the first grade. And being a parent, my attitude was, how can you tell me that my son needs to repeat the first grade? My son is a wholesome, wonderful, intelligent kid. How can you tell me that my son has to repeat the first grade? And uh, then they introduced us to this thing called an IEP. And man, did I get familiar with IEPs over the years to come. I sat in parent conference after parent conference after parent conference, and we adjusted IEPs and, you know, sweat bullets over IEPs and the whole nine yards. I used to joke that they gave us so much paper I could, you know, set my fires in my living room to the IEPs in the fireplace, etc. But anyway, uh, we got introduced to that, and uh, he repeated the uh, first grade. Uh, but the problems continued, and uh, we moved to Powhatan, where I took the pastor of Red Lane Baptist Church, and I would come home in the evenings, and my wife would tell me, he's been fussing, he's been crying, uh, wrestling with his homework, etc. Uh, we had a dog in those days, a black lad named Duke, and I used to put Duke in the room with him, because Duke would calm him down. We, we learned how to add off of Duke. One Paul plus another Paul equals two Pauls. And uh, two Pauls plus two Pauls equals four Pauls. And, and uh, Duke ran out of body parts after a while with us trying to, to do math. But as long as I had Duke in the room, Jonathan was going to be okay. And uh, finally, we took him for testing, and uh, they discovered that he was dyslexic. And, uh, and that reading for him was a torturous experience. Uh, math. Uh, was a torturous experience. And I remember sitting uh, in an IEP session his, uh, when he was getting ready to go into high school. And they looked at us and uh, 
I said, you know, he's got plans of going to college, and they could not really assure me that he would have the academic uh, intelligence, et cetera, to get through high school in order to get to college. And uh, that was a heartache for me as a parent. Uh, we were blessed when we got to Chesapeake. He went to Oscar Smith High School. They had a special ed team there. They got right on his situation and worked with him. And uh, we also had some folks that understood dyslexia that worked with him along the way, and, and they worked with him. And uh, Jonathan uh, ended up in the Math Honor Society at Oscar Smith, which was a miracle of the Lord. Uh, and, but I watched him. He just wrestled his way through high school and um, graduated and then went on and stayed after it. And he had to work his head off in college. But last May, he graduated from Regent University in Virginia Beach. But all through, it, it was a struggle because of the issues that he was struggling with. And I say that to share with you that that's sort of given me a sensitivity to young people and to folks in general who struggle from an educational perspective. I got in active in PTA work when he was in um, uh, elementary school. And one of the main reasons I got in it was because I could keep an eye on the special ed department. And those special ed teachers love me because when they come to the PTA and ask for anything, I made sure they got the money and the resources and everything else they needed uh, to get the job done. But again, that has just sort of given me a, a sensitivity to, to folks that are struggling with those kind of issues. And so you're going to probably see me from time to time around here. What are we doing with special ed kids? You know, how are we ministering to folks who struggle to read, et cetera, et cetera, because that's the family background that, that we've had as a family. Uh, the final... Uh, life experience I want to share with you is when I was in high school, I spent a summer my sophomore year, uh, God just spoke to me and said, I want you to spend this summer just alone with me. And I just prayed and prayed and, and studied in the book of Romans and didn't know what the Lord had for me, but it was like a summer that God was telling me, get alone with me and just stay before me. Uh, the next year, I was sitting at my home church one Wednesday night and they announced to us that the inner city mission centers of the Richmond Baptist Association were looking for what they call sojourners, which were like summer missionaries in those mission centers. And so uh, that interested me. I wanted to do ministry, so I signed up, and I got assigned to it. did not realize that this was going to track for the rest of my life. Went into uh, those mission centers and started in Hillside Court, which was a public housing area, and worked there. Uh, then they assigned me to Oregon Hill, which was a rough neighborhood. Um, and then they assigned me to Churchill to work in the House of Happiness, which was the oldest women's missionary union mission center in the Southern Baptist Convention. I did tell them it's called the House of Happiness. It doesn't sound like a mission center. It sounds like a house of ill repute uh, going by that title. But uh, begin to work in those mission centers, and I got a first-class introduction to difficult inner-city poverty. As I began to work with people who were facing poverty, who were facing violence, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that began to impact me uh, in the churches that I would serve and leading mission teams into those type of communities. I pastored in a community like that for the last eight and a half years. Uh, when I interviewed and came here, I told Joe, I said, the kind of communities I've done a lot of ministry in, I want you to take me to those neighborhoods in Rocky Mount. And on a Monday morning, he took me from neighborhood to neighborhood and showed those communities. Um, we're going to target some of those neighborhoods. And we're going to go into some of those neighborhoods. Uh, hopefully by the time it's over, we've gone into all those uh, neighborhoods. Uh, and, and, and we'll share the Lord Jesus uh, with those folks. And when we go in there, I don't go in to just do evangelism. I go in to do evangelism, which leads to discipleship, which leads to leadership. 
Uh, one of the thing, goals that I had at South Norfolk was to go into public housing neighborhoods, to lead people to Jesus, to get them started, and then to produce leaders. In the last number of years, in our big mission project, we saw folks in those communities who were leaders now in those neighborhoods in sharing the Lord Jesus Christ. Just because somebody's in poverty doesn't mean they can't be a leader. And just because folks have had a whole lot against them doesn't mean they can't move into leadership that they're discipled and worked with. And so that will be an impact uh, of what we do uh, and, and one of the many aspects of where God's taken us. Uh, from an administrative perspective, I began this past week here at the church having a weekly meeting with all ministry leaders. This, we're experimenting with times. Uh, if you're on staff it's pretty much man, and you draw a salary, it's pretty much mandatory to be at the meetings. Um, if uh, your ministry leader is a layperson, you are more than welcome to, uh, to join us. We're experimenting with times. This coming week, it'll be at 3.30 uh, in my study. And the purpose for that is to get the leadership team together every week to do several things, to pray together. Secondly, it is to coordinate and plan together. So all of us are on the same sheet of paper and we know where we're going. Another reason is if we don't agree with each other or we're knocking heads or we might knock heads, etc., let's get in the room, let's talk it through, let's pray it through before anything goes beyond that point. I've always found it good to get the leadership core together on a regular basis to think together, to pray together, to work together, to plan together, and it's amazing how that just sort of flows out into the rest of the congregation. Uh, we'll also be having a meeting in a few weeks um, with the leadership of our committees in conjunction with particularly those committees that are would be bringing motions to the church um, so that everybody knows what's coming ahead of time and we've all talked through and prayed through all that kind of good stuff before we get to it. Administrating a church is not the most exciting thing in the world, but if it's not done, you have a mess and it just flows through everything else. If you do it and do it right, then everything else tends to smooth, move through real smoothly, and so that's the purpose of that. The final thing I want to do before we get into preaching is invite you to join me July the 22nd through the 29th in what we call SHRIMP, the Southampton Roads Mission Project. We're going to leave and do what I call taking Rocky Mountain on the road. And we're going to be going to the Southampton Roads area. This is a mission project that I have led for over 10 years. We'll be joining with churches from, uh, and folks from North Carolina and across the state of Virginia. We will be doing 10 vacation Bible schools or mission projects of some type that week. We do about 4 in the afternoon and 6 in the evening. They're done, of course, simultaneously. So the team is spread out in four different sites in the afternoon, six different sites in the evening. We have one site that will be in a nursing home, and the rest of the sites are going to be out in big open-air areas. Uh, we feed at all those sites because the folks we're working with are in poverty, and they need the food. We share Jesus any and every way that we possibly can. Uh, I'm going to need help in doing recreation, Bible story, crafts. We do reading camps at many of these sites. Uh, we do woodworking camp. Uh, that is for kids who can't seem to focus at all. Uh, on sitting and listening to the Bible, but they'll sit there and work on a woodworking project where someone talks to them about Jesus and they build something. Uh, and any particular gift you've got, I went to one, we went into one community last year and we were doing the vacation Bible school piece out in the big yard area, doing a big recreation uh, section with the teenagers. And I had one lady who came to us and she said, my gifting is crocheting. So we set her up with a tent and she sat there and taught girls how to crochet all week long in that tent on that field and talk to those girls about Jesus. So any way we can do it, I've got one lady who has what we call a, a witnessing cube, and she just wanders throughout the whole part 
taking that witnessing cube at those different sites and sharing Jesus with folks and, and leading people to Christ. Uh, we will begin training for that on June the 25th right here. And we do a whole lot of music for these projects. When we get on the site, we're going to train you in all the music and all the choreography that goes with it. I have found the music is one of the most effective ways to share Christ and to get kids uh, and folks just to uh, listen to what we're trying to say, get into it, and remember what we have done. We had a situation a number of years ago where one of our young men was working at Taco Bell who had been part of Shrimp, and a family rolled up, and a little boy was sitting in the back, and uh, he saw one of our team members who was working at Taco Bell, and he said, uh, I remember you from Bible school. This was one of these outdoor Bible schools. And he said, yeah. And as they drove off, the little boys started doing the choreography in the back seat to one of the songs that he had learned. So we'll train you in that. We're having a great time together. Now, the whole time I'm your pastor, however long I get me here, you're going to hear me talk a lot about us doing missions together, going on mission projects together. That's to share Jesus with folks. But I have another agenda, and that, that's how we get to know each other. That's how we make memories. You know, I can only get to know you, but so well up here. But man, when we're working together and sweating together and fussing each other and pulling our hair out with each other and sharing Jesus with each other, sweating like crazy and all the rest, we really get to know each other and we really build the memories together. I had an experience a year ago this past December where one of those folks who was part of our work in Powhatan, we call it the Norfolk Mission Trip back in those days. Bucky was his name. Bucky was a senior adult. Bucky was half crazy. And Bucky went with us on those early Norfolk mission trips. Used to love to watch Bucky dance to the music. I mean, Bucky made up steps that we had not trained him in. And he did his own thing when he got going. But Bucky was in his 70s. And uh, Bucky led his first person to Jesus in Norfolk on one of those trips. And when Bucky died, they asked me to come back and do his funeral. And I decided to use some vacation Bible school music in his funeral, some rocking vacation Bible school music in his funeral. And when I began to do that, it was amazing to watch the team members all around the church start doing the choreography uh, together. And we celebrated Bucky's life and the impact that he had made for Christ on those mission trips and the memories that we shared. And I'm looking forward to doing the same with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the journey that we have begun this day. It's your journey. Lord, help us just to sign up for it and move with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Corey Tin Boone was a lady who, as a young lady in Holland during the Second World War, was locked up with her family when the Nazis came in and took over her town. She was taken to a Nazi prison camp where she watched her sister Betsy waste away and die in front of her. She lived through the experience, and following the end of the Second World War, she began to travel the world telling people about Jesus. Someone asked her as she reflected on her life in her book, Tramp for the Lord, how do you live your life? going all over the place telling folks about Jesus. She responded in this way. She said, God comes up with the schedule, and I just put my signature to it. God comes up with the schedule, and I just put my signature to it.
And as we begin our journey today as pastor and people, I want to challenge us to let God come up with a schedule and we just put our signature to it. Finding God's will and living God's will. And I've discovered something about the will of God. God never shows us His will for us to veto it or discuss it or think about it. He shows us His will because He wants us to live His will. He is calling us to live the will that He is showing us. But how do we find His will? If there's one question I've been asked more than any other as a pastor through the years, it's been, Pastor, how do I know the will of God? How do we together know the will of God? If you'll turn with me in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. And my sermon outline is on the back of your bulletin as it will be every Sunday. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. We looked at the verses, verses 4 through 6 prior to this. It is prophecy concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus. Up to the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah, the focus is on the history of Israel and what God had done at that time up to that time. And then beginning the 40th chapter, moving forward, the focus begins on the future at the time of Isaiah what he is anticipating. When we get to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it presents Jesus as the Messiah, but catch this, the Messiah as the suffering servant of God. He is God's Messiah, God's anointed, but he is going to come, and the primary way he's going to come is to suffer on the cross. In verses 4 through 6, it lay out the suffering of his life and particularly focus on the suffering that he went through for us on the cross. But then it says in verse 10 that he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. That we believe is a reference to the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. And then notice this phrase. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Where is the will of the Lord? It is in the hand of Jesus. How do we know the will of God? How do we walk in the will of God? We take hold of the hand of Jesus. As long as we are focused on Jesus and we are walking hand in hand with Him, He will show us His will and we will walk in His will. Now, what does he mean here when he says the will of the Lord prospers in his hand? We're going to take this verse apart. First of all, what is the idea of the will of God? There are two basic ideas in this Hebrew word that's used here. The first is that the idea of desire. This is the desire of God, the intent of God, the focus of God. This is what God wants to do. But it's more than just information. It first carries, yes, the idea of the mind and the intellect of God. It's what God desires, what He's thinking when He looks at your life and my life, when He looks at our corporate life as a church. It's what God's thoughts are about us, what He wants to accomplish with us and through us that fits into everything that He is doing. So it's that idea of mind. But it is more than that. It is also the idea of emotion. God is not emotionless. He created us with emotions because we're a reflection of who He is. So when God looks at us, and, he, and, the, and the will of God is not just 
where should I be and what should I be doing, it also combines into it God's emotions about us. When He looks at you, He doesn't just say, I want you over here, I want you doing this. He looks at you and the Bible says He rejoices over us. He worries over us. He pours Himself out over us. It is the idea also of His will being the journey that He's got for us, the relationship He has for us. I talked about my son a few moments ago. When Jonathan was growing up, I had a will for Jonathan, the things that I hoped he would do that I wanted him to do, but it wasn't like it was just cold facts. Son, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to go to this place. It was, son, this is what i like for you to do. This is what I want you to do. This is what I think you should do with your life. But son, I also want you to know that I love you and I care about you, and I'm involved in your life, and we are in a journey together. You see, my will for my son wasn't just intellectual thoughts for my son. It was also the idea of emotional attachment that I had for my son and a journey that we were on together as father and son. Last uh, fall, Jonathan and I took a few days off. We've always had a habit, as much as we could do it through the years, of having a father-son retreat, and then the latest last number of years doing a father-son trip. And uh, we went to Washington, D.C. for a day and Fredericksburg and, and hung out for about a week together doing different things. And as we were doing that, we were reflecting on the last 24 years. And as we were reflecting, some of the things that he and I shared together were the things that I had said that I wanted him to do and places that I hoped he would go and what he would become in life. But we also shared about the emotional attachment that we've shared together as father and son. The friendship that we've grown over 24 years together. And we talked about the journey of life we've been on together as father and son. It wasn't just cold facts. Son, I want you to go to college. Son, I hope you do this or I hope you do that. And you see, God's will is far greater for you than just go this place and do this. God looks at you and he says, yes, there's the intellectual side of it but there's the emotional side of it. God rejoices over you. God wants to spend time with you. God wants, Jesus wants to pour his life into you. It is the idea of the journey that he wants to be. The second idea of the will of God, it's an interesting Hebrew word here, it carries the idea of extreme value. When it says the will of God prospers in his hand, it is the idea that what's in the hand of Jesus, that will, that desire, that plan he's got for us, is the highest value of anything you and I can experience in life. When I got engaged to Helen, I went to get the engagement ring. And I walked into the jeweler, and the jeweler said, before you buy the ring, I want you to look at the interior of a diamond. Now, for years, I had seen girls get engaged, and they had to always show off the rock that was on their finger. Have you ever noticed that when girls get engaged, they walk in the door, they want to show the rock that they've got. And I looked at it, you know, as a guy, you know, you sort of look at the engagement rings. I don't know, maybe you guys are like, this. I saw, yeah, well, well, that's nice, you know, I go on. And he says, I want you to see what a diamond really looks like. So he took me in there and he took this diamond and he put it under a microscope. And I looked into it. If you've never looked at a diamond under a microscope, you're just missing what a diamond looks like. I looked into that diamond, and it looked like what I would call mountains of glistening glass. It was absolutely breathtaking. I couldn't believe I thought, man, I've been missing this. I've just been looking at these rocks. I didn't realize what the interior structure. And, and he pointed out something to me. He says, if a diamond doesn't have this kind of structure, you've got a fake on your hands. Because this is what the real thing looks like. This is value. 
I can attest to that because I bought the diamond. <laughs> and I paid for it. <laughs> the will of God is like mountains of glistening glass. Exquisite beauty. Awesome value. What is in His hand has value beyond anything that you and I can imagine. And when we live it out, that's when our lives become packed with value. The will of the Lord is going to do what? When we live it out, it says it will prosper in His hand. Now, got to be careful with this word prosper. Because in the United States, we associate prosperity with stuff. If somebody's prospering, they're making more money. If somebody's prospering, they got a better job, a bigger house, bigger car, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We in the United States associate entire prosperity to how much material stuff we've got. That is not the context here. Notice in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah when it talks about the will of God prospering in the hand of Jesus that the prospering is taking place in the context of speaking of Jesus' suffering and sacrifice and death on the cross. Jesus was prospering when they rejected Him. Jesus was prospering when He hung on the cross. Jesus was prospering in the midst of blood, sweat, and tears that He poured out. He was prospering when He was living out the will of God in the midst of sacrifice and suffering. And when it says that the will of God prospers in His hand... If we live the will of God, sooner or later, we're going to be called upon to sacrifice for Jesus. If we're going to live out the will of God, sooner or later, we're going to have to suffer with Jesus, and we are going to have to suffer for Jesus. That is the biblical idea of prospering. I would, it would be nice to stand up here and tell you that if you follow Jesus, that He's going to prosper you and you're going to get all this stuff and everything's always going to be smooth and easy. The problem is that is not true to the Word of God. It may sound good. It may make you think nice things about me, but it's not true to the Word of God. If you and I are going to follow Jesus and if we're going to walk in the will of God and if we're going to prosper in living out God's will, sooner or later there is going to be suffering involved and there is going to be sacrifice involved. And when we try to short-circuit the suffering and the sacrifice, we miss the will of God. There is no privilege, quite like the privilege, of sacrificing for Jesus and suffering with Jesus and for Jesus because it brings us so close to Him. The Bible says of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. In Timothy, it says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That is a biblical promise. As much as the Lord is my shepherd is a promise, suffering persecution for Jesus is a biblical promise. Sometimes folks over the years have come to me and they've talked about going on mission trips and they've said, well, you know, am I going to have to do this? Am I going to have to do that? I'm going to have to do the other because I really don't want to, you know, be so inconvenienced. Folks, following Jesus is all about inconvenience. 
Have you ever, I don't know if you all do this at Rocky Man. If you do, then we're going to break this habit. If you don't, then God bless you. That's one habit we won't have to break. But I have noticed through the years that people, I've said in nominating committee meetings, this drives me nuts when this happens. Okay, so you all know now that I have to say this at a nominating committee so I don't go nuts on you, okay? We will ask so-and-so to do this because there's not a whole lot that you have to do. Would you please serve over here because if you serve over here, we can promise you that you only have to meet a few times a year. You only have to do just a little bit. And then we all sit around and fuss about how nothing's getting done because we promised everybody they wouldn't have to do anything anyway if they got nominated to the position. Isn't it an insult to Jesus to say, come do the Lord's work, but you don't really have to put much time and energy into it? You see, the picture of it prospering in His hand is the idea that if it prospers in His hand, there is going to be sacrifice. There is going to be suffering. That just goes with it. Prospering in His hand also means that what prospers in His hand is His will, and His will means we're going to connect with people a lot of times that a lot of people don't want to connect with. They don't want to bother with. One of the problems that so many churches struggle with is we like to connect with people who make us look good. And particularly people who can put money in the offering plate. But we don't want to necessarily connect with people who are not going to make us look good and feel good. But Jesus prospered in the will of God by reaching people and hanging out with people and ministering to people who did not enhance His reputation at all. But Jesus knew God loved them just as much as He loved anybody else. So when we prosper in the will of God, it means we're going to connect with people and reach people that other folks may want to shun. Where does it say it prospers? It says, in His hand. The imagery of the hand in Scripture, let me just give you a few ideas of it. I, I looked at this week at, uh, at Young's Analytical Concordance. I mean, it's page after page of the word hand that's used in Scripture. So let me hit a few highlights here of the image of the hand of God. Where does it prosper in His hand? Number one. Write this down. The power of the hand of God speaks of the power and strength that God has. Think about the hand of God. Number one, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the hand of God is pictured as creating this world. Second, man, I could go on and on. The hand of Jesus took the bread and the fish and broke a few of them up and fed 5,000 people. That's the kind of power that's in His hand. The idea here is that the hand of God is not just the will of God, it is the power to do the will of God. Anything that God calls us to do, He's already got the power to get the job done. We just got to get in the flow of the power. Never back off from anything that God is calling you to do or calling us as a church to do because we don't think we got the resources or the power. The resources are already there. The power is already there. We just got to get in the flow of His power. You see, when they brought the fish and the loaves to Jesus that day, and they had the huge crowd, they could have said it'll never happen, but the power to multiply it was already there. They just had to get it in His hands. The leper in Luke chapter 5. I love what Jesus does there. They bring this guy to Jesus. He's a leper. 
You're not supposed to touch somebody with leprosy because you can get leprosy yourself. And what does Jesus do? Jesus reaches out and he touches the leprosy. He lays his hand on a contagious, deadly disease because he knew that the power in him was greater than the power of the disease. And when we follow Jesus, He calls us to reach into the lives of people where there is disease because He knows that the power in Him is greater than the disease that's in them. He calls us to touch communities because He knows the power in Him is greater than the disease that's in the community. Second idea of the hand in Scripture. It speaks of authority. And possession. In the story of when Peter tried to walk on the water to Jesus, and he got out there and he was walking on the water, and he looked at Jesus, and everything was going great, and then all of a sudden he started getting his eyes on the on the you know the storm and listening to the thunder and all that kind of stuff, and he started sinking. It says that Jesus walks up to Peter, and what does he do? He takes out his hand and he reaches down and he grabs Peter by the hand and he pulls him up out of the water. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, Peter, my authority is over the authority of the storm. My authority is over you drowning right now. My authority is greater than the power of the water. Peter, when I grab your hand, you are now in my authority. You are not under the authority of the storm anymore. You're not under the authority of drowning anymore. You are now under my authority. When he grabbed a hold of Peter, he was saying, you're my disciple and you belong to me. Even though you blew it, you belong to me. Even though you screwed up, you belong to me. And I want the storm to know that you belong to me. I want the other disciples to know that you just screwed up in front of that you belong belong to me. I'm going to let God the Father know as I pull you out of the water that you belong to me. Authority and possession. The hand of God speaks of connection. Think about how many people you shake hands with or hug with your hand every day. What are you doing? You're connecting with them. When it says that the hand of the will of God prospers in his hand, He's connecting with us. And never forget this, folks. The hand that you connect with has got nail scars in it. The Bible says, the book of Revelation, that we will worship Him for eternity as the Lamb of God. Why are we going to worship Him as the Lamb of God? Because every time we look at Him, we will see the scars in His hand as the Lamb of God, and we will worship Him is the one who died for us. It's a nail-scarred hand that takes a hold of us. Finally, his hand is the place of life. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, Jesus stands in front of his disciples after the resurrection, and this is what he says to them. Look at my hands and my feet. Touch my hands and my feet and see that I am alive. Now think about that. Guys, you saw me die. You saw him take my dead, lifeless body and wrap it up 
in a shroud and place it in a tomb. The hands that had been filled with life were still. So many times when you had seen my hands touch people, etc., and you had it touched my hand, you'd felt blood flowing through my hand, and now you, don't, you couldn't feel that anymore. The hands were still with death. No blood flowing. They were cold. Touch my hand, Peter. Touch my hand, Thomas. Touch my hand, Bartholomew. Because when you touch my hand, what you're going to feel is life. When you touch my hand, what you're going to feel is blood pulsating through my hand. When you touch my hand, you're going to feel not coldness, but warmth. Because my hands are hands that are filled with life. Touch my hand. And folks, when we reach out in prayer and touch Jesus and get a hold of His hand, we will live like He is alive. I told my people in South Norfolk over and over again the last few years, the resurrection celebration isn't just for one Sunday a year. It's for every Sunday of the year because we are resurrection people. Now, how do we take a hold of His hand? Prayer. Wednesday nights, right now, we're studying the Lord's Prayer together at 7 o'clock. And then we're going to go to pray. I don't like prayer meetings where we talk about prayer and never get around to praying. We're going to pray. I'm asking all of our leaders here for committee meetings, etc. Start your committee meeting, start your ministry time in prayer. And if someone walks up to you in the hallway and says, would you pray for me? you got my permission and my blessing to stop what you're doing and pray for them right then and there. I want us to have a culture around this church that folks can walk down the aisles or hallways, whatever, whenever, and it's not unusual to see us just stopping right in the hallway and praying for each other, praying together. If I'm shaking hands anytime around here greeting folks and you walk up to me and say, Pastor, I want you to pray with me about something, we're going to pray right then. And if you're close by, I may invite you to be part of a prayer cell and we'll just start praying right then. Because that's how we touch the hand of Jesus. That's where we touch the hand of Jesus. We don't have to wait to designated times and worship services to pray. We just need to pray whenever God calls us, whenever there's an opportunity. I've got some neighborhoods around the parsonage that I can walk out and I can see and I want to reach those neighborhoods for Jesus, so I'm already praying for those neighborhoods when I walk out or when I look out the window. God, I don't know those people yet, but I'm praying over those neighborhoods. I found if you start doing that, when you show up in the neighborhood to do ministry, the Spirit of God has already been at work in that community. But prayer is where we touch the hand of Jesus. And prayer is where we get the schedule from God. And we put our signature on the schedule. Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask you.